Church podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. In a community and the kind of life that is required for that, it is encouraging and discouraging at the same time to recognize that... Um, Jesus' disciples didn't always get that. They didn't always understand it. The audience to whom Jesus spoke didn't always get that. It's encouraging to me to recognize that that seems to have been part of the strategy of the Holy Spirit to create a crisis moment, a place of, of explosion where the kingdom of this planet, if you will, or the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God come together. And we're heading towards that climax in... in uh, Palm Sunday next week and then the following week, uh, because of this, the uh, pace that we're moving through the Gospel of Luke, we're kind of uh, telescoping ahead, if you will. And uh, heading into this uh, sermon t- today, which is what we're going to be talking about on uh, the, the kind of the celebration for the disciples of Passover, um, is Jesus is coming into town on a donkey which was a symbol not of triumph but of service, uh, modeling for them, for the community, for the world, watching what his kingdom was about. It's not about who's in charge. It's about who gets to serve. It's not about top-down. It's about bottom-up. It's about who who can serve the most. So the Son of Man, Jesus will say, did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer up his life as a ransom. Even though he said that multiple times in multiple ways, the disciples didn't always get it. Uh, And we don't always get it. Uh, We're still very anxious about who's in charge, where power lies, who has this final say, who has authority. Mm -hmm. And to the degree that we ask those kinds of questions is the degree to which the kingdom has not yet come in our own souls. The more concerned we are about who's in charge, who has power, who has final say, who has authority, those kinds of questions are top-down questions, not how can I serve you questions, right? So Jesus comes into um, the, the city of Jerusalem. Palm branches waving is a recognition, a remembrance of, and a celebration, but also a kind of a shaping of the story uh, for people who have... Um, been anxious about the Roman Empire. So we've already mentioned this, so I'm just going to snapshot it. Remember, we have Roman Empire in charge. Darren has led us through an understanding that Jesus kind of postures his ministry as a confrontation of the powers uh, of, of Rome. And no more is this the case than when he comes into town. People are waving these palm branches, trying to suggest that this is, in fact, the new Messiah who has come, who will lead us into victory over Rome. And he does so heading into Passover, kind of July the 4th, Independence Day of the Jewish nation, the day of deliverance from Egypt. All of these these images are colliding in people's minds and consciousness. So you can imagine their frustration. When instead of leading the parade to the Roman garrison, Mm -hmm. he takes a left turn and goes to the temple and cleans house there. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't didn't you get the memo? This is not what Messiah comes to do. He doesn't come to purify Judaism. He comes to kick out the Romans. To establish us again as the leading power in the world. 
questions of power and authority mean you probably still haven't got it yet. So he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He cleans house, if you will. He calls his people back to people of prayer for the Gentiles, which is what Israel existed for in the first place. They forgot who they were, so they forgot what they were supposed to be doing, and soon religion replaced relationship. And they lost the capacity to partner with God in saving the world. Jesus relentlessly moves towards this confrontation of powers that we call Easter. And the next stop for us, at least, is this Passover night. So if you have Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We'll have it on the screen. There are Bibles here as well if, you're, if you'd care to make use of one of those. So we'll pick it up uh, later on in the chapter around, down around verse 7 uh, where the day of unleavened bread comes. So um, Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparation for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. This is a poignant question. It underlines the fact that Jesus has been saying to them over and over again, if you follow me, you're not always going to have a place to lay your head. In whose house ought we to celebrate this? So Jesus says, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. We don't know. Uh, It seems to me that Jesus has made previous arrangements. We don't need to see this as some kind of prophetic mystery. I think Jesus has made some previous arrangements with this person to have and share in a guest room. And so he will show you to a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparation there. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. By the way, I love this image that Jesus is doing things behind the disciples' back that they don't understand. Anybody know that he's still doing that? Good. Um, They came and found the Passover prepared just as Jesus said. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, and here's where we'll pick up the main focus, I have eagerly desired to share this Passover with you before... I suffer. That word in there has this whole flavor of ideas in terms of Passover, celebrating the Passover, Paschal sacrifice, the cross, and everything else. And he's trying to reframe this. For I tell you, I will not eat it again, please notice this, until it finds fulfillment, completion, focus, telos in the kingdom of God. So after taking the cup, which we will later come to understand, Paul says it's the third cup of the Passover. Darren's going to unpack that for us in a minute. He gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine, the fourth cup of celebration until the kingdom comes. He took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Remember here is not recall to mind. It is reenact, re-embody. Do this again as a way of bringing yourselves into place and presence. In the same way after... He took the, uh, he, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup, this is, this is the third one, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But please notice, 
But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And then they all began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And then a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So here we have this powerful Passover celebration. And they don't get it. What was it that they didn't get? So we're going to go back and look at the framing of this from a Jewish audience, and Derek's so, going to take it. In order for us to understand the significance of what Jesus is doing here, he takes the central image and symbol of the Jewish religion, Passover, and def- uses that to define what he's doing. This would have been so controversial with the disciples watching what Jesus just does. He takes the symbol of the bread and the cup and says, this is about my, my ministry. Every time you do this, remember me. And for us, 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to take a juice and cracker and, and symbolize what Jesus did. And for many of us, we don't even realize the significance of communion or Eucharist, which is the word um, grace or gratitude. Or, or one way to translate communion is, um, or I'm sorry, Eucharist is good gift. But in order for us to understand what Jesus is doing, we have to understand the story of Exodus, which was the defining story for Israel. And so if you have a Bible, go to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to go to Exodus and look at what's going on. I want to summarize Exodus for us, but we'll look at a few passages in Exodus. We'll start in 12. Um, But the story of Exodus is the people of God, the Israelites, are enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay, and um, they cry out to God for a deliverer and God sends them Moses. And we've seen this on the big screen. We know they're remaking it with Christian Bale. It's going to be exciting. um, All these movies about the Exodus story. Why are we so fascinated with the story? The story of God interacting and liberating humanity. It's, It's a beautiful picture. But this is the story that Israel kept going back to. It was the story that they would remember because it was the defining story that uh, separated them from all other nations. It was a story that God revealed his promises and, and kept his promises. So God sends the Moses, uh, Moses the deliverer, um, the messenger of God, um, to liberate these oppressed people. And he, he does it through a series of, of acts confronting the powers that were in charge, confronts Pharaoh and the false gods. And we've read about the plagues. Remember, God sends ten plagues on Egypt. And nine plagues were significant because nine plagues, um, just the Egyptians experienced the plagues. We had boils on the skin. We had uh, um, frogs and locusts and, and, and darkness covering the sky. All of these plagues were intentional acts against the, the uh, Egyptian false gods. So the Egyptian god Ra, um, the god of the sun, when darkness covers the sky, it was an assault against the god Ra. And so we read about these significant um, stories and plagues that were intentional. It was a direct um, attack against the false idols, those that they thought had power. And God, Yahweh, was winning the battle. Okay? And remember the story, let my people go, and he didn't until the tenth and final plague. And um, nine plagues, the Egyptians suffered the plagues, and the, the Israelites didn't. There was, they, there was a distinction between the two of them until the tenth plague. And in the 10th plague, um, God doesn't make a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Um, Up until that part of the story, the Israelites just got to watch as God did something for them. And then in the 10th plague, 
they were invited to participate in the story. They had to participate in the story. He gives the Israelites very specific instructions about this plague. God's going to come over the whole land of Egypt and kill every firstborn, whether it's an animal or male son. The firstborn in Egypt was worshipped. This is how Pharaoh passed on his deity. This was a direct assault against Pharaoh and his line of future children. And so there's all implications about the firstborn, but, but the story goes on and it says that the Israelites are to take a spotless lamb and sacrifice the lamb and use the blood of the sacrificed lamb to cover and anoint the door frames, the door mantles of the home. And they were to sit and eat, uh, I'm sorry, they were supposed to sit and eat a meal ready to go. It says that um, they're, they're to keep... Um, their sandals on and their coats tucked in because God's going to come and pass over their homes when they did this. So nine plagues, they were immune from the plagues. And on the 10th plague, they had to do something. They had to participate in the story. So we pick up at Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. Um, on that same night, I, this is God speaking to the Israelites. I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I'll bring judgment on, on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's where we get the word Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You, uh, for the generations to come, you shall celebrate as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. On the, on the, t- the night of the tenth plague, the Israelites had two problems. Number one is that they were enslaved to Pharaoh. They were slaves in Egypt. But the second problem they had is that they were subject to God's wrath. They were subject to God's judgment. But God, through the blood of the Lamb in Exodus chapter 12, gives them instructions, gives them a way to be protected from his judgment, gives them a way out. But they had to participate in the process. So the Passover becomes the defining festival, the the Jewish Independence Day um, for the Israelites. It was where God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He was going to free the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. And he does it. He does it. Um, This this festival changes the calendar for the Jewish community. This becomes the mark of the new year for them. Um, The Passover was was central for them being the people of God. It represents God as a redemptive God who always provides a way out. And they had to commemorate. So a thousand years go by and Jesus comes about and Passover is institutionalized, is commemorated um, in this Jewish festival. But it becomes formalized and traditional. And the meal itself is called Seder. How many of you have heard of the Seder meal? It's the actual Passover meal. And it means order. And um, what they're called to do is remember what God did with uh, with the nation of Israel way back then in Egypt. And during the meal, there are four cups of wine. And this is significant for us to understand as we move into what communion symbolizes. The four cups of wine gave order and meaning to the whole Seder meal, which is where they're recalling what God did in Exodus um, for the Israelites. And these four cups of wine uh, come from four different promises in Exodus chapter 6. So go to Exodus 6 so you can see um, what, what's happening. Exodus 6 verse 6. There are four promises God gives Israel before uh, Exodus takes place. He says, therefore, say to the Israelites, 
I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. So you're sitting at this meal for a very long time. It is a long meal. The Seder meal lasts for hours and hours. And there's four cups of wine. And the first one is called uh, the cup of blessing. And it's the, the statement where I will free you from the burden. It's the, the statement of all that God does. So the cup of blessing is remembering all that God did. It's giving thanks to him. The second cup is the, uh, called the um, cup of judgment. And the judgment, it's that God says, I will deliver you from the plagues. It has to do with remembering and recalling the plagues that God uh, gave over Egypt. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts. And the fourth cup is the promise that I will take you as my people. And it's the cup of the covenant, the fulfilled promise, or the cup of covenant. So these four cups of wine would have been um, the story being retold for all the Israelites that would sit down on a Passover meal. So when Jesus says, I want to have this meal with you, and begins to talk about the ministry he's doing, the mission he has, he's tying in all this Exodus story, all this language from Exodus that helps us understand that this is about what God did in Exodus, but it's now about what God's doing through Jesus. Are you with me? All right. So we go to Luke 22. We pick back up. And, um, and as, as Bill has already explained, Jesus comes in the Sunday before Passover, the day that you would choose the spotless lamb to sacrifice on the altar. Jesus comes in on that day on a donkey. The donkey symbolized um, a service, as Bill said. And and it also represents, uh, um, when the palm trees go down, it represents the type of Messiah they want. They want the revolt. They want to take down Rome. But he doesn't go to Rome. He goes to the temple and he shuts down the religious system because all that God had given Israel had become corrupt. And Jesus now opens up back in Luke chapter 22 and begins to talk through um, the Lord's Supper with him. And Luke makes it, writes this intentionally. We know that there were uh, two cups of wine consumed before the meal. Okay, in the Passover Seder meal, there are two cups of wine that they drank before the meal. And then there were two cups afterwards. And we see that Luke wants us to know that the cup Jesus is choosing to say, this is my blood, or this is the cup of the new covenant, excuse me, is the third cup, the cup of redemption. Do you want to jump back in? Yeah, so, so in that, again, what had happened as Darren was walking this through this is that it had become an historical remembrance of something that happened then and there with a hope of something that was future, that was going to invite them into a new and, and promising future. And so by choosing, as we've talked about those two cups, Jesus is saying, this isn't, this isn't about them. Mm. This is, this is about you, but it shifts. It, this is not their story. This is our story. And he invites us, invites them to become now partners with the new way, especially when he makes this outrageous statement to them that this redemption is not what has happened. This is a redemption that is happening. This is a cup in my blood. This is a, a covenant in my blood, a promise that that re- promised redemption that we're looking for, 
that you get to participate in, not through the symbols, but through actually joining in. So, so as Darren made the point here, that the Passover, it's not sufficient for you to remember. You have to re-embody, re-engage. And of course, it had just become, like so often it becomes for us, I think, just a symbol. Hmm. Just a crackers and juice. Just crack bread and wine. It just, it's just something we do. And Jesus invites us to not let it descend into just becoming something we do. But every time, Paul will use this language, every time, he says, in the tradition that's handed down to you, do this in remembrance, not reminder at the intellectual level, but re-embodiment. Remember me. And with that twin Awareness of covenant, God's acting unilaterally to redeem us in the blood of Jesus. It's fascinating to me that sharing that cup with him was somebody who would betray him and enable that sacrifice. And sharing that cup with him Hmm. were all of us whose primary concern at the dinner, while he's talking about the pouring out of his life, about a covenant that was yet to be realized in the kingdom finally and fully to come. What was our conversation? Which of us would be the greatest? Which of us would be the greatest? So we see this, this and Luke is doing obviously this uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, just so intentionally to laser our focus down into what in the world, what in the world is going on here? where kingdom crashes in. Mm. Kingdom of heaven crashes in and confronts the powers, not with strength, which of them would be the greatest, but with weakness. This is a new covenant in my blood. And of course, as we later on, we'll invite you to the table, but we are invited into not just think about, but to re-engage, re-enact, make the sacrifice our own. So Jesus takes this symbol of Judaism and the ceremony that's celebrated for thousands of years and redefines it to make it about his ministry and the new covenant that we get to we get to we are invited into. In Exodus 24, I just wanted to go there because God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. Um, do you want to mention what covenant's about? You have a really good illustration. Well, covenant is essentially. The, the way the way I think it, it frames here, covenant is God's promise to act unilaterally towards Israel, towards His people, to those whom. And so, as He talks about covenant here for the for the disciples and through them to us, He's saying God is going to act towards you in a redemptive way from now on. Now, whether you receive that as blessing or receive God's action as curse will depend on your orientation to covenant. Remember, we've talked a little bit about this before. It's like a, 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 a whitewater stream flowing down, down, down the river, right? And if you're in a kayak in a canoe, right, and you're flowing with the flow of the river, the flow of covenant, you receive that flow of covenant as being blessing. Hmm. But if you get sideways to the river, or if instead you are trying to row back upstream... 
you will receive that same flow of covenant, that same flow of the river as oppositional to you. And so God says, I'm going to act towards you in such and such a way. But remember, orientation matters here. Are you oriented to the flow of the river, flow of covenant? Are you receiving it as God's expression of love? Or, in Paul's language, does the cross become an insult? Does it become foolishness? In which case, the cross is going to tip your boat because you're going to be opposed to it, and it will be opposed to you. God acts in the same way, but how we are oriented determines whether we receive it as blessing or as opposition. Does that make sense? That's helpful. And I think when, when the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, in the story of Exodus... They're called, they're freed from Egypt, and God sets them at the um, bottom of Mount Sinai, where God brings the Ten Commandments and gives them the law and says, If you keep my commandments, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You will be my treasured possession. In other words, you're my peeps. You're my people. If you keep my commandments, and after all of that, they respond, we will obey your decrees. We will keep your commandment. And then Moses, in chapter 24, verse 8, took the blood of of sacrificed bulls, of animals. The cost of a a covenant costs something. Covenant costs something. It costs a great sacrifice. And he took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, you are my people. And the cost is a sacrifice. And it was, the, the blood became a symbol that they were the people of God. And if you go to Luke chapter 22, Jesus says this. He takes the cup. He gives thanks and says, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He broke the bread, gave thanks, broke it, took the bread, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Again, language straight out of Exodus, but this time it's Jesus's blood. This is a new covenant. It's not the covenant of old. It's a new covenant that it cost Jesus's life. And this new covenant means new life. This new covenant means a, a, a new way of living. It means new relationship with God. It means that anyone that takes the bread and the wine in the name of Jesus and remembers what, he's, what he does, they enter into a whole new relationship, whole new life, whole new freedom with this God. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking something that was so symbolic for the Jewish community and he brings it right back to make it about him and the work he's going to do on the cross. And every time we gather on Sundays, every time we come forward and we take a cracker and we dip it in the juice, we recognize that it costs Jesus' life for us to worship freely, for us to walk in purity and holiness with God, for us to move forward, moving the kingdom wherever we go through the power of God. So Jesus takes this symbol and says, this is about me. It's a new covenant. It's a new Passover. And you have to participate. Um, I want to share this. Israel had two problems on the night of Passover. They were enslaved to Pharaoh. And they were under God's wrath and judgment. We have two problems. We're all enslaved. 
Whether you believe this or not, we have been enslaved to the ruler and the power of the world. We have been enslaved to our own sinful behavior. The very things that corrupt our souls, that, that keep us from a, whole, uh, 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 a great capacity for relationship. Sin diminishes our capacity for relationship, not just with ourselves, with each other, but for, with God and all of creation. We, have, we, we are all addicts to some degree, and I hate to use that word, but we are. We're addicted to shopping, we're addicted to media, we're addicted to alcohol, to pornography, to sex, to finding, defining ourselves by everything else. We are all enslaved to something. We have a problem. But not just slavery, not just slave to sin and the works of the devil. We also are under God's wrath. Because God can only act in love. And wrath is a natural response uh, to injustice. Wrath is God acting in love towards His love, loving creation. How, what does that mean? When someone, if somebody ever wronged my wife, and I just thought, oh, that's okay, you can do that, there'd be something wrong with me. Would you agree? That natural response to someone harming something that is beautiful in, in my life is a natural response that God has. But here's the deal. God acts justly. And so God is not only wrathful, that comes out of a place of love, but he justifies himself. Because we were designed to live in perfect relationship with God. We were designed to live in perfect relationship with each other and ourselves, and we blew it. God can only act justly towards us because of that love. And so what God does is rather than making us suffer the consequences of our despair and sin, He gives us a lamb. He gives us Himself and gives us a way out. He gives us a way to deal with our slavery and with His judgment. He takes it upon Himself and He goes to the cross for our behalf. This is a story of the Lord's Supper. That we have two problems. We, like Israel, have two problems. Slavery and the wrath of God. But God gives us a way out. I think the key on this, too, to remember that for the people of Israel, Darren made the point that they had to participate. This was not one of those judgments that they could kind of watch happen. This is something they had to enter into in a concrete and physical way. And we would be mistaken to say that's what this is. Yes. This isn't how no. you engage in the sacrifice of Christ. That engagement is by faith as God invites you to the foot of that same cross 2,000 years ago to confess and receive the, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts through that sacrifice. All we're trying to do here is remember that participation, to re-engage it. Does that make sense? It's not the partaking of these elements that bring us into realignment with covenant. When we partake of these elements, we're, we're reenacting the time of our re-engagement, re realignment. So we want to uh, remember, but not do what Israel ended up doing, saying, mm -hmm. this is the moment. No, this is a reminder of the moment. But it's worth being reminded of the moment because of the significance of that. God knows us so well, right? Whenever I do a, 
a wedding ceremony sooner or later, somewhere in the middle of this, I'm going to ask the bride and groom both, what token do you offer that you will both faithfully and diligently keep your covenant to one another? A ring. And they say a ring. Well done. Well, you officiated my wedding. Uh, so yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> so when, when, when the disciples, when we ask Jesus, what, what token do you offer? That you will both faithfully and diligently strive to keep your covenant with us. The covenant of blood, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of return. Mm -hmm. Jesus looks at us and says, this is my body. It's broken for you. This is my blood. This is my covenant. This is my promise. I'm as good as my word. So this morning, we are going to take a cracker and dip it in juice as a symbol of a great reality. As a symbol that Jesus gives his life so that we can have life. And when we take this, we've got to remember that this isn't, a, like Bill was saying, it's not about a transaction that we're remembering that one day, I, I wanna, one day we're going to go to heaven because of this. It's about heaven here and now. That even as we participate in this, we are entering into a, a reality that we as, as the body of Christ are, are, the, are the sign of what's to come in the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.